All right, I have uh, spent the majority of my life uh, rooting for teams that consistently underachieve. Anybody else in the room uh, have teams? Now, here's the deal. Is that all the teams that I root for in various sports, I kind of inherited, right? I inherited as a little kid or because of whatever. And uh, most of them, actually all of them, as I thought through this, almost all of them, had some success kind of either when I was a little bitty kid or, you know, sometime right before that in the 80s or 70s. And so they were, they were the team to cheer for when I was picking a team, you know. And uh, all of them have consistently let me down uh, for <laughs> 35 years now. And so, um, I mean, this is true of the Dallas Cowboys. Um, this is true of the Texas A&M Aggies. In, in soccer, no one, none of you care, but Manchester United, every single one of them, more often than not, I end up on the losing side. Now, have I ever played professional soccer, football, or college football for that matter? No, but those still feel like my teams. You know what I mean? And I just long one day to be on the winning side, right? Not just like a game, but like the winner, the champion, right? And maybe you can uh, sympathize with me. Maybe you're a fan of somebody that actually wins. I don't know. Uh, but I think every single one of us, uh, it's one of the reasons I think we love sports. It's not all of you. I know some of you don't care about sports. Uh, but it's one of the reasons we love sports is because we feel like because of someone else's success, we get some sort of benefit, right? Why am I yelling at a TV with 20-year-olds throwing an oblong-shaped ball around? Like, why? Because in some weird part of my heart, I want the success that they're having, right? And all of us do this, men. Maybe some of you women as well. Uh, but I think it also, one of the reasons we love sports is because there is a clear winner and loser, Right? There's a clear, we scored more points than them, we win. You scored less points, you lose. We like this clear, defining line. Now, Shane, I can see it in your mind. You're thinking, but soccer has a tie. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. We like this clear separation between winner and loser, and we all want to be on this side. It's also one of the reasons I think that we as a, as a society love TV shows about justice, about crime. Uh, think of the show CSI. How many lawyer shows are there? We love shows about this because deep within us, in our heart, we want to see a clear dividing line between right and wrong, just and unjust, winner and loser. There's something about our DNA as humans, and I would say the image of God on us that built into us is a love for clear dividing lines between truth and untruth, right and wrong, winner and loser. And more and more so in our day, we live in a culture, in a society uh, that says that there is no real truth. Everything is subjective. Everything is a, a spectrum. Everything is, a, is a, a dependent on how we feel. Or, or, you know, there's not clear dividing lines in our culture. 
somehow everybody's viewpoint is true and nobody's viewpoint is really true, right? This is the society that we live in, but every one of us knows deep within our hearts that actually there is right and there is wrong. There is truth and there is lie. There is good and there is bad. Today in our passage, Jesus is going to draw a line in the sand. He's going to be confronted. He's going to deal with some some propaganda. and, And he's going to draw a line in the sand. And he's going to say there's really just two sides. There's not a spectrum. There's not varying degrees. He's going to say you're either with me or you're against me. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of Satan. He leaves no room for it today. So let's, let's read it together, starting in Luke chapter 11, um, verse 14. And we're going to read all the way to verse 32. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. Mute means he can't speak. And when the demon went out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. It's it's an insult, but it's a name for Satan. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But, But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first." And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
And the men of Nineveh will rise up, the, rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the truth in it. And God, I pray that as we... Uh, study the words and we study the, the sentences and the meaning and the, the, what, what Jesus is teaching and what he's talking about, God, I pray um, that maybe more than anything we'd get to the central question is, are we for you or are we against you? Are we with you or are we against you? Are we gathering with you or are we scattering? God, I pray that you would help us to see the truth. Um, that there really is just two sides. We're either in the kingdom of God or we're in the kingdom of darkness. And I pray this morning for anyone in the room who still resides in the kingdom of darkness, still is under the control of Satan, and who does whatever he wants them to do. God, and I pray this morning that you would help us to see that through belief in Jesus, we can... Uh, be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God, there is salvation offered to each one of us. And so I pray that you would help us to understand this morning, God. Help me to make it clear and make it make sense as best as I can, God. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so Jesus, uh, Luke tells us this story starting in verse 14 that he was casting out a demon from this man and this man was mute. He could not speak. And Jesus, this day, comes and he casts out the demon. And what happens? Irrefutable evidence. What happens? The man speaks. Right? Very clear. He didn't speak. He had a demon. Demon's gone. Now he speaks. And Jesus, on this day, is attacked by the religious leaders. They're trying to accuse him that you're actually from Satan. You're not from God. Trying to discredit what Jesus has obviously, clearly, visibly done. And they're trying to discredit him with propaganda. The modern term for that is fake news, right? Um, they, are, they cannot deny what he has done. They cannot deny the miracles that he has performed. And so what are they doing? Just like our media, they're spinning it, right? They're creating a new narrative. They're, they're throwing out lies and seeing what sticks. And so their claim is that Jesus is doing this. He did it. We can't deny that. Their claim is he's doing it by the power of Satan, He's not from God. He is from Satan. And why are they doing that? They're, they're doing that because they do not want people to believe what Jesus is saying. This is why Jesus does miracles in the Bible so many times. It's not just to like, put on a show and draw a crowd. Why does he do miracles? To prove that his words are true. And to prove that he is from God. And they don't want that. And so they're trying to discredit him. Uh, they're trying to silence him. They're trying to limit the extent of his word. And so on this day, he heals this man. And the mute, the mute man speaks. 
And so the, the Jewish leaders, they claim, they try to dissuade the people, and they're saying, yeah, he did it, but, but it's really by the power of Beelzebul, right? I talked about last week how I, there's some words I just don't know how to pronounce. This is one of them. I'm just going with it, okay? So if, if I'm wrong, please come correct me at the end. If you just sound confident, people will think you know you have a degree or something, right? Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul is a name uh, in... in a Jewish name, and it's an insult. It, it, it means Lord of the Flies, but, but it, it was this, this satanic, uh, evil thing. And it was kind of the height of insults, okay? I, I don't know how to say it. I don't know what the equivalent is today, nor am I going to say it from the stage, what the height of insults are in our day. But Beelzebul was the height, right? They are claiming that the Holy One from God is actually the most unholy thing that they can even imagine. They're trying to discredit him by calling him names, by slandering him. Now, why would they do this? One, because it works. And we see it in the passage. Some of these people see what Jesus has done, and what does it say that they, they were? They marveled. Some people see what Jesus has done, and they're, they're blown away. They're thinking, man, this guy really is from God. His word really is true. But look at the next verse, verse 15. But some of them said, there's always, a, in any crowd that believes, we talked about this on Wednesday night, Shane, when, at the, at the, uh, when Jesus is resurrected, and, he, and he's there on the, on the mountain, and he's giving them the great commission. And it says, some of them saw him and worshiped, but others doubt it, right? Within every crowd, there's some that do not believe. And, it, and, and these religious leaders have convinced these people that actually what we need is one more sign. Now, we don't know what, what they're looking for because Jesus has raised people from the dead. He's fed large numbers of people. He's, he's cast out demons. He's done it all. So I don't know what they're looking for. I don't know what would have been enough proof for them but their mindset is, well, if you do blank, then I'll believe. Or if, if, unless you do blank, I won't believe. If you don't perform this, if you can't do this, then I think you're actually from Satan. And so what this reveals is their hearts do not believe. They do not believe he is from God, and they're looking for one more sign. But if Jesus would have done one more sign, their hearts were so hardened, they would not have believed. Jesus doesn't give in to their test. Let's look at it, verse 17. He doesn't give in and, and try to do some one more miracle. <laughs> he, he, start, he tries to reason with them. Look at verse 17. He says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong, oh, let me stop there. No, let me keep going. Uh, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divide his spoil. 
Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus engages with these, these uh, fake news people, these propagandists, whatever you want to call them, the naysayers, the unbelievers, and he tries to reason with them. And I think there's a genuine heart here that Jesus engages with them out of compassion. He's trying to convince them of the truth. He's trying to bring them over to see how your unbelief is unreasonable. And so he uses two common bits of knowledge. He says, first, if a nation is divided against itself in civil war, it will not stand. Same is true for a family. If a family is divided over a certain issue and it's causing strife, that family will not stay united and together. Everybody knows this, and they have seen this play out. This is common sense. And so Jesus says, if I'm casting out demons by the power of the demon ruler, huh, this doesn't make any sense, right? Your logic is wrong. Why would I be casting out demons if I'm working for Satan? Why would I be actively working against Satan's kingdom if I'm a part of Satan's kingdom? Think about it, guys. (sighs) He really shows them up. It makes no sense for Satan to be sending Jesus to destroy his own kingdom. And so Jesus is making this clear point. If I'm not for Satan, then who am I for? And he says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? He's making it very clear. If I'm not for Satan, who am I for? And if I'm for Jesus, if I'm for God, I'm from God, I'm sent by God, what does that mean for you? It means that the kingdom of God is here and you're not a part of it. He's drawing this really clear line in the stand. That you're either a part of the kingdom of God or you're a part of the kingdom of Satan. And he's saying, I'm not a part of this. You can tell that. Look at verse 21. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus is saying, yeah, this, this Satan has had control over this mute man. And there was a strong man who was guarding him. But what happens Uh, In any situation, if somebody stronger with bigger guns, bigger muscles, bigger whatever comes on, they win. In football, the low man always wins. Whoever's stronger is always going to win. And Jesus says, if I'm coming as and casting out this demon, I am the stronger man. Yeah, Satan has some control. He has some influence on this earth. But what happens when somebody stronger comes along? See, Jesus is making it very clear. I have no partnership with the kingdom of darkness. I have no uh, intention to be friendly with it. I have no intention to let it remain. I'm coming as the stronger man, and I will defeat it. As Steve Bishop, my youth pastor, would have said, Jesus is here to kick tail and take names, and he forgot his pencil. He's here to kick tail and take names, but he forgot his pencil. Jesus is here showing there is no power of Satan that has any place. I am the stronger man. He's drawing a clear dividing line in the sand. And here he says it so clear, verse 23. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
There are only two sides. There are only two realities. There really are only two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of truth and the kingdom of lies. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And the question is, is whose kingdom are you in? Whose kingdom are you in? Let's keep going, verse 24. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. I read this this week at first, and I'm thinking, man, how, what, 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 Jesus, what are you talking about? Waterless places and seven spirits, and what, you, what is this? And I think Jesus, in his own way, is trying to teach, how do people try to enter into the kingdom of heaven? How do they try to enter into the kingdom of God? And he uses this one as an example, right? So he says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it goes and it passes through waterless places. Imagine this person, right, who has been mute, been possessed, and all of a sudden is set free from something in their past. What happens in that person's life? There's great joy. There's excitement. Uh, they, they really clean their lives up. They, they, they put themselves back together again. Now, this is an incredible thing, right, that we ought to do those things. But notice what he says here, and it's helpful to read the Matthew account too. That, that this spirit leaves, and it's coming back to look for a place. But what does it find when it gets back in verse 25? It says it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And the Matthew account says that, that his house is unoccupied. It's unoccupied. And so this person who has been set free from this baggage is now all of a sudden free, but he leaves his heart unoccupied. He doesn't fill it with anything else. He doesn't give it to someone else. It's still open to be occupied. And so this is a picture of somebody who, who is trying to clean up their life, clean up the externals, do all the right things on the outside, and maybe they don't have any demon possession anymore, and, and their, their lives starting to look a little bit better, and they're, they're coming to church, and they're, they're cleaning it up. But they don't deal with the heart. They don't fill the heart up with something else. And what does he say happens to that kind of person? It says that the, 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 the demon comes back and it brings seven of its friends and the last state of that person is worse than before. Why? Because he didn't fill it with the stronger man. He didn't fill it with Christ. He didn't fill it with a guard. And this is the point, right? Jesus is saying, so many of us try, so many of you try to earn your way into the kingdom. You try to pretty up your lives. We try to, try to do all the right things on the externals. We try to dress a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way. But if we don't actually have the heart, we are in a worse state than before. If we don't actually fill our heart and our mind with the truth of Christ, 
with the love of God, then we're open to a worse state than we were before. Remember the context of all of this. Jesus is speaking to those who are not in the kingdom, those who are attacking him. And so what is his, me- Woo. What is his message? He's drawn a line in the sand. He said, you're either with me or you're against me. And now he says to them what? Being in my kingdom, it's not about putting your life all together. It's not about looking pretty. It's not about uh, having all the good works. It's not about uh, getting the house in order, so to say. Coming to Jesus isn't about self-improvement. Coming to Jesus is about total surrender to Jesus. It's not about self-improvement. That's not the primary aim here. We don't come here as people to read this and go, how can I be the best me? Maybe that will happen. We come here to go, how can we surrender to God's word, to the truth, to the ultimate reality? How can I fill my life with Christ in my heart so that, so that my life is surrendered to him fully? So Jesus is making the point. There's only two sides. And the way to get to my side from that side it's not self-improvement. Let's keep, let's look at another one. Verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus is talking about what it looks like to be on his side, what it takes to enter into the kingdom, to be a part of his family. And this woman cries out. Now, I don't know the woman's heart. I can't read into all of that, and I won't. She may have some belief. She may just be praising, man, what, Mary, what an amazing woman to have birthed you. Like, your mama must be so proud, as we would say. Um, and and I, I think, though, it's important that we understand some of the heart behind what she's saying. Because the heart behind what she's saying is really what it takes to be blessed, to be a part of the kingdom, to be a part of your family, is to be a part of the family. It's about being a certain kind of person, about being from the right family, being the right ethnicity, being the right whatever. And, and we think this too, right? Right? We have some of these false beliefs about what it means to be a, a Christian, that you got to come from this kind of family or this socioeconomic class or this race or that race. We carry some of that baggage in here too. And Jesus is making it clear, no, 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 no. Being on Jesus' side is not about being from the right family. It's not having the right background. It's not being the right ethnicity or anything like that. It's not about family relationships or social connectedness or social status. No, our entrance into the kingdom of God is not based on any of that. What does he say it is? Look at verse 28. He says, it's not my family that are blessed. He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Hear the word of God and keep it. It's those who fill their heart, their house with the truth of God. It's those who don't just hear it, but those who keep it. Those who do it. Those who, who love it and care about it and are changed by it and obedient to it. 
And so Jesus is, is making this incredible statement that, that, that a relationship with him and a relationship with God and being in the kingdom of God is not about being from the right family. And maybe that doesn't mean anything to us because we're varying races and varying whatever. For them, they're all Jews. They think that their heritage and their family is their connection to God. And he is directly speaking against that. He says, you are not a part of the family of God simply because you are Jewish. The only way you can be a part of the family of God is to hear the word of God and keep it, to do it. Now that means that we have to hear it and believe it and live it out. The only way we can do that is if we're given a new heart with new desires. We need Jesus to do that. Look at verse 29. It says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear of the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So how do we get from kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? How do we transfer our citizenship? How do we have a new heart? How do we come into his family? How are we saved? Jesus is teaching here, and it's foreshadowing, but he's teaching it's through repentance and belief. It's through repentance and belief in Jesus. So let's look at it. Jesus, uh, he's speaking to the crowds. And, and so many of us, man, sometimes the world paints Jesus as this lovey-dovey, you know, just kind of hippie kind of character of Jesus. Anybody see the Jesus Revolution, uh, the movie about the 70s? Yeah, we kind of picture Jesus like the guy with the long hair, just, just come on, friends, let's all live together, or whatever. And uh, Jesus is not exactly that guy. Because what does he start with? What does his gospel presentation start with? He says, this generation is an evil generation. He pulls no punches. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. He goes straight to the problem. The reason you're in the kingdom of darkness, why? Because you've got an evil heart. You've got a wicked heart. Isaiah 29, 13, Jesus tells, uh, or it's prophesied, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching the doctrines of men, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's saying, you have all the right words on the outside. You've got all the religious action. You're from all the right families, but your heart is far from me. You've done all the externals, but you've missed the point. Your life is religious. Your heart is evil. And he says, verse 29, that this generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. He's telling them what? I, I, there's nothing I can do to prove to you beyond what's already been done, what's already been said. And he says the sign of Jonah is enough. The sign of Jonah is enough. Now, what does he mean by that? 
Let's just refresh our, our memories of, of Jonah. Jonah is an Old Testament prophet, and he's in Israel, and God calls him to rise up and to go down, up, over, wherever he goes, to Nineveh. And Nineveh was the most evil place they could think of. The most wretched, wicked people that they, they could even wrap their minds around. And God calls Jonah to go to them. And what was his message supposed to be to them? Repent, and God will not destroy you. And Jonah goes, no way. I'm not telling them that. I do not want them to be saved. I want God to destroy them. And so Jonah doesn't go up to Nineveh. He goes down, right? And God uses a, a ship and a storm and a large fish to bring him to a place where he realizes how wrong his heart was towards these wicked people. And the fish, three days later, after he's presumed dead, vomits him up on the shore. His life is resurrected and he obeys God, and he goes to Nineveh. He proclaims God's judgment, and the people repent. And we won't end with the rest of it. Jonah's mad about this still. So what does Jesus mean that the sign of Jonah is enough? Now, there's so many parallels in Jonah's story to Jesus. Like Jonah, Jesus was sent. He was sent to call God's enemies to repentance. Jesus was sent just like Jonah to call God's enemies to repentance. And just similar to Jonah, Jesus is going to die. And he's going to be dead for three days. And like Jonah, he's going to be resurrected from the grave. He's going to be resurrected. And through his message, those of us who hear it can repent and be saved. And so Jesus is, is speaking of Jonah and Nineveh as a sign. He's saying, I'm about to do the same thing that just happened, but even better. He says, look at verse uh, 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. God sent Jonah to be a messenger of salvation, and God has sent Jesus to be a messenger of salvation. And his message is, repent from the kingdom of darkness and turn and come be a part of the kingdom of light. Jesus is saying, uh, it's interesting, because he's really calling these people that he's talking to, you are Nineveh. These people who are Jewish going, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we're God's people. We're special. And he's saying, uh, you're an evil generation. You're like Nineveh. And I've come to proclaim the truth that the only way to enter into the kingdom of God is not by cleaning up your life. It's not by getting your religious act together. It's by total surrender. Belief in Jesus. Now there's a whole bunch here about the queen of the south. And for sake of time, we're going to skim over it. But the point at the end is this. He, 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 Jesus uses these two Old Testament examples to point out this. That these wicked people that you think are so bad, they had such limited knowledge and they turned at the preaching. 
And you have seen sign after sign after sign. I've healed people. I've raised them from the dead. I've, I've turned 5,000, I've fed 5,000 people with a few loaves. I've, ra- I've done it all. You've got way more than, than Nineveh had. You've got way more than the Queen of the South had. And they turned. And the, the point that he's saying is, what about you? I've told you this good news. Repent and turn to God and be saved. And your wicked hearts continue to look for another sign. Jesus has made it very clear that the way we are to be saved is to repent from thinking that we know what is best, to hear the word of God, and to believe it, to believe that Jesus died and was resurrected so that we could be saved. That's the only way. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your, your background. It doesn't matter your religiosity. It doesn't matter any of that. The only way to be saved is to believe in the good news of the gospel. And so the question today for every one of us as we come to this text is what side are we on? Are we in the kingdom of God? Are we in the kingdom of the enemy? Who is our king? Is it Jesus? Or is it our flesh? Is it Satan? Is it Beelzebul? Right? The question today is very simple. There's a line down the middle. Have you submitted and turned your life over to Jesus? Let me pray. God, you said that as your word is proclaimed, that it would go out and it would accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it. And so I pray this morning, God, as we come to this text and we talk about what it means and it, and it draws a line in the sand, God, there's, there's some people that have heard this and maybe some have heard it for the very first time or maybe they've, they've really heard it for the first time, God. God, I pray if there is conviction that they are without Christ and they are without hope, God, that they would repent of sin and they would turn to Jesus because he is a gracious king who desires to forgive and show mercy. And so I pray today that if anyone in the room does not know whose kingdom they are in, God, that they would turn to Jesus who died in our place, the death that we deserved, And he rose again from the grave to proclaim the good news that death has no power over us anymore. God, we don't deserve that because of our family, because of our religiosity, because of anything, God. The only way we deserve that is because of grace. It's a free gift that you offer to us. And so I pray this morning that anybody that isn't saved would call out to you to save them. It's that simple. God, I pray for the rest of us, God, that we would live that out. God, that if we are under the kingship of Jesus, if we are in the kingdom of of light, God, that we would be light and we would be messengers of good news like Jonah and like Jesus, proclaiming to people that you can be saved. There's There's life and there's purpose beyond where you're at. And so we love you this morning, God. I thank you for grace. God, we thank you that you've rescued us. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.